Brooke Belden. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on my humble podcast. I really appreciate that. Um, before we before we do get started with some questions, um, let, let's just plug Saint Salier, um, and I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll link uh, to to it in the description. Uh, and Brooke is the founder and owner of Saint Salier uh, online perfume retailer. You are you are just online right now, right? Yes, for the time being, I am. Um, for next year, I'm hoping to get a pop up scheduled for April and kind of start doing pop-ups around London and see how that goes. Wonderful. Uh, are you shipping pretty much worldwide at the moment or are you still, or are you restricted in any way to where you can uh, ship? No, I'll ship, you know, just about anywhere that FedEx um, will ship. Um, yeah, I've been kind of shipping to many destinations and it's been going absolutely fine. So um, I, I'm happy to ship anywhere. Wonderful, because um, well, I mean, we'll get more into detail about uh, how Saint Celia came about. But let's let's start with um, you. Obviously, have a love of perfume, and do you have any very early memories of where that might have all started? Um, I kind of, I guess, when I started wearing perfume, like kind of regularly in like my day-to-day -day life. Um, that was, I think I was like kind of in my late teens, early twenties. And, you know, I was, I was very fortunate enough when I left home, I found myself living next door to this fabulous drag performer. And they were also an account manager for like Lancome. So what they were doing like in their day job was like going to all of these department stores. And, you know, we just had the most fantastic time living next door to each other. And, and they used to bring me just tons of like perfume. Like when they would go to the department stores, they would always come back with like fragrances for me. And that was really how I kind of got introduced to like, um, Chanel number no. 19, Cristal, uh, the original Michael Kors, um, the original Dolce & Gabbana perfume. And I don't know, it's just like, I knew, I knew that these perfumes, I really enjoyed wearing them. I didn't really know anything about perfume at the time, like, it, like things like notes and um, who made what and ingredients. That was just all kind of not something that was on my radar then. Um, so yeah, that was kind of like my introduction to fragrance and so there's clearly a, a lot of exposure to, you know, kind of big designer perfumes that are available in in department stores. Do you remember the moment when you discovered uh, niche perfume or yes. what we what a lot of people refer to as niche and ind independent perfume? What was that first experience like? So my first, I guess, niche perfume was Serge Luton's Tuberose Criminal. I'm mm -hmm. not really sure if we're considering that niche these days. But um, so I, I kind of, I'm not really even sure how I discovered perfume blogs. And I started reading all of, you know, a lot of people were writing about this perfume and they were writing about these um, really extreme reactions to like the way that it, like the opening notes of this perfume and I was like oh my god this sounds incredible <laughs> so um so it was like one of my first Christmases in London and my mom was like what do you want for Christmas and I was like I want that perfume 
and she ordered me a bottle from the from their boutique in Paris because it was like the only place she could get it at the time. And it, yeah, it did not disappoint. And I think smelling that perfume, I kind of had never experienced a fragrance that was like deliberately objectionable in that way. Like perfume, like up until that time to me had always been something that was, you know, meant to smell like nice or, you know, pleasing or, um, you know, just, things along that nature and because this perfume was like you know it smelled like dry ice and gasoline and you know just <laughs> it was just a really strange thing to wrap my head around but I I really enjoyed wearing it and that was kind of how I got into niche and independent perfume it's interesting you mentioned tuberous criminal uh, because I only smelled it for the first time a couple of weeks ago and oh. I didn't I didn't know that was what I was smelling uh, because I, I had some <laughs> blind samples that I was trying out. And uh, it was one, I mean, of the few that I was trying, it was one of the ones I really actually enjoyed. And it took me by surprise that yeah. something like that I could enjoy. Because tuberose is generally a difficult note for me. Uh, and, and that one worked really well. But like you, know, like you and like probably what a lot of people described the opening was a bit to a, a bit kind of a, a slap in the face for me yeah. before it started to dry down and and um i really warmed to it so yeah that it's it's interesting you mentioned that particular perfume so you uh you obviously don't have a uk accent brook um so you you moved to the uk um after growing up in North America, the States, or? Yeah, yeah. So I moved to the UK in uh, 2005. Um, mm -hmm. My husband's British. And yeah, we were kind of, we met in New York. And then we were, we spent a bit of time kind of like doing like this whole transatlantic dating thing. And then, you know, we just kind of, it, I don't know, it kind of got to the point where we, it just felt weird for us to like be apart from one another. So we looked into like how I could relocate to the UK and I was going to study here. And um, the embassy was incredibly tiresome about the whole thing. Just like, oh, you're just, you know, you're just doing this to be with your boyfriend. And it's like, well, so what? Like <laughs> I'm still paying an extortionate amount of tuition. Oh, yeah. um, so then in the end we were just like, well, so we just get married. And, and we did, you know, so we went down to like Marley Brown registry office. We just found like two, completely random people to be witnesses for us and yeah that was it <laughs> leading up leading up to what you do now did you um what was your experience working with perfume retail or in the industry in in some way did you were you doing anything before that yeah yeah so i'd worked with a, a few independent brands like in their studios and i spent a bit of time um working at uh, Bloom Boutique in Covent Garden, and I also used to work with a um, as online subscription platform, uh, which when they launched, they were called Hoo-Ha, and then they rebranded to um, Scent Social recently. Okay, and um, all right, so what was the impetus for you and, uh, or the inspiration for you to decide to start your own retail space um and for independent 
perf- perfume brands, um, you know, what what was the spark for that? Was that brewing inside you for some time, or was there was there a sudden stroke where you decided, um, I need to do this? Well, I'd kind of been thinking about it um, probably for about two years before I launched anything. I mean, personally, for me, as somebody that had been like collecting fragrance for a long time, I felt that the uh, the retail scene in the UK was becoming quite tired. It was, you know, I felt it was quite stale. And I mean, all of the perfumes that I was buying, I was basically importing them from you know, just other places. Um, So I guess through my own desire for these products, I thought, well, you know, there's probably a lot of other people that are looking for them as well. And then, um, you know, I I just ended up speaking to Barbara Herman at Eris about it. And, um, and then she was like, would you want to like schedule a time to talk? And, and we did. And, you know, she was like, I'm very interested in um, Eris being in the UK. If you'd like to do this, I'll send you an initial shipment of stock to get you started. And that was in April. And then I had Sancelier launched in June. And that was basically how it started. It was, you know, just kind of like that one conversation, um, just to that got everything going. Were there what were the main um, challenges and obstacles you faced setting it up? Uh, like, I, I, I mean, on the surface, it would appear like you set up a, a website, you get um, some stocking of brands that you're interested in, but I imagine that it, there's a lot more um, that you have to deal with in starting up a business like that. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that's probably the most challenging aspect of it at the moment is. Um, the UK, like just because of Brexit, and there's been a lot of difficulties uh, that like small businesses like mine, because I'm not, I'm one thing that's really difficult for me kind of on an ongoing basis is because I'm not turning over enough to qual- to qualify for VAT. Um, anytime I'm importing an order from Europe, I'm getting like a huge VAT bill to pay with it. So it's like, I'm basically just like setting that money on fire. Like it's just like, it's gone. Um, so that's always like quite difficult to to deal with. Um, is, that, is that only on stuff imported from, from continental Europe or anywhere outside of the UK? Well, there are customs as yeah. well. Um, but because of, I think there was a new like customs limit that was set up for like trading with North America after Brexit. So there's like an $800 limit to like when you start to receive import fees. But, you know, then you do have, I mean, most of the orders are over that amount anyway. So there are additional um, customs bills to pay with that. I mean, for me, I didn't really, I mean, I there are a lot of great independent brands in the UK, but as somebody just kind of uh, trading online at the moment, I felt that, I could end up effectively just doing marketing work for them because most customers, if given the opportunity to, will buy directly from the brand, right. which is is great because you know then the brand gets that full margin. But yeah. you know, as a retailer, I because I'm also putting a lot of money into the brands that I'm stocking. I I work with a copywriter to produce you know unique text. I have like photographers that I work with. 
So I'm doing a lot of legwork for them as well. Um, just from from a UK point of view, do the brands that uh, – because um, I'm not very uh, cluey about how this all works, but do the brands that you retail – do they all have to abide by IFRA guidelines for their for their perfumes? How does that actually work, especially a brand that's um, coming from North America, you're selling from the UK? How does that all work? And I imagine that you had to do quite a bit of homework when, it, when you started up in regards <laughs> to these things. There's always like ongoing homework to, to understand like all of these like rules, which it's very, it's actually quite hard to, to find um, just a, a regular source of information about these things. But it's my understanding that the UK basically, um, for all of their talk of wanting to take back control, just adopted all of the rules that were in place in continental, continental Europe <laughs> anyway. So in terms of like the perfume industry, I don't really think much has changed in terms of like if for regulations and I mean, it's certainly um, not like it was in the States where they really didn't have to adhere to anything. So uh, everybody that I'm working with is working within the IFRA guidelines as well. Yeah. And uh, um, okay. So when it comes to to the fun bit, I guess for me, it would be the fun bit, the fun bit of uh, starting to curate the, the brands that you work with, that you sell, uh, how did you, what was your process for that? I mean, I, I'm imagining that you have, a, you, a lot of it would be part of your personal taste, what attracts you to, to a brand, but do, do you have uh, guidelines or specific things you look for in brands when it comes to curating your, your stock? Yes. So I, the first thing that I always think about when I'm, uh, sampling a new brand is do these perfumes remind me of anything else and if I kind of pick up like a glaring resemblance to like another perfume that's kind of like an immediate thing that puts me off I don't I'm not really looking for anything that's trying to be like another Baccarat Rouge or Aventus or um, I think I th just as as a general way of thinking I think if your initial a thought on a fragrance is another perfume that it reminds you of. That perfume is essentially a failure because it is not a unique work. It's if it's trying to be something else, that's not something I'm interested in. Um, and with a lot of the brands, I mean, the perfumes, I guess initially they were perfumes that I had bought as a customer and um, that I felt kind of needed a place in the UK and people that I've enjoyed buying from. And, you know, just when you're working, buying from small brands, you sometimes get into like emailing with them and, um, you know, occasionally chatting on social media. So a lot of it is also like just people that I like and want the, that I want to work with. I, I think that definitely shows through. I mean, uh, I, I, know you and, and met you initially from uh, on social media like a lot of people do but like I can vouch for the fact that you have a great relationship with with all the brands that you stock and and 
people can't speak highly enough of you and and what you're doing for small brands. So there's a bit of a shout out for you, Brooke, because um, like everyone that deals with you loves loves working with you and and you as a person. So um, I, I think that's always a good sign in that sort of retailer um, uh, brand relationship because i mean the fact of the matter that is that that doesn't always happen between retailers and, oh, and in particular not. independent brands yeah I, so I, I just want sorry um <laughs> sorry. I, I, I just didn't want to forget um something you you mentioned right at the beginning of that that answer when you talked about uh if a perfume reminds you of something else so because i was going to ask you about what your thoughts were on the clone and slash dupe industry within the perfume world. Um, any any opinions on <laughs> what it all means? Um, I, I find that whole thing just absolutely abhorrent. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of ideas there that, um, you know, around consumerism and consumption and also like ideas about aspiration. And I don't know, I, I think that's, I think people have gotten into this like way of thinking of like, they're going to have something no matter what. And I think that's like quite a, like a strange, I don't know, it's, it's not really a mindset that I quite understand it's it's also i guess like when i look at um subscription platforms and i i did work for one um it didn't really i didn't really understand like if somebody wanted a perfume like this whole concept of just buying like a little bit of it like if i'm like if i'm in prada and there's like a dress i want and it's like i can't afford it i wouldn't be like well, can I just have a sleeve? Like, it's yeah. just that that whole concept to me just it doesn't. Um, I don't know. I I kind of find it it's like it's okay to tell somebody like, no, you can't have it. Like, everybody's an adult here, and I I think you know on some level people just sort of need to accept that they can't have everything that they want, and you know, getting into something like buying clones is. I mean, that's to me, like, I feel that that whole thing should just be completely illegal. And here in the UK, you see, you see popular magazines like Hello and, um, you know, other things like that. And they're, they're actively promoting dupes in those magazines. And it's just like, I, I just don't understand it at all. Like why, why you would be promoting something like that. I was in Sephora only a couple of days ago and noticed that they were stocking a brand that it doesn't overtly say that they're a, a dupe brand, but everything I know about them appears to be um, perfumes that are inspired by more popular perfumes and, and they're sitting on a Sephora shelf. But I, I mean, this is kind of something I've, thought about myself a lot and obviously when when you look at different other um artistic platforms that also have a commercial side to them like for instance music and uh you know copyright uh rules and laws with with things like 
music who 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 owns the rights to a song or a melody and and stuff like that. Do you like? Do you think that that can be applied to perfume? Um, yeah, I think it. Uh, I think you know, perfume and music. There's so many ideas that are parallel to one another, um, and I don't see any reason why fragrances shouldn't also be able to be protected under copyright. Mm. Well, it, because I, I know that it, it has become a lot more prevalent um, for. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that some of these brands. Uh, and I and I know nothing about how the technology works. I just know what it's called the the gas the the gas chromatography that's used yes. to I guess uh, give you a blueprint of a particular perfume formula. Um, like the fact that you can do that to me seems like a, a logical, also a logical thing to use when it comes to whether something's been like blatantly copied um, and and sold to for a profit, which is what, to my mind, a couple of the you know more than a couple of these brands actually do. So they're they're usually at a lower price to the original, um, and that's the that's kind of the appeal. They're they're appealing to the market that don't have the financial means to buy the original. Well, I also think it's, I think, I also think duping culture is kind of symptomatic of the larger culture of overproduction in the fragrance industry. And, you know, the amount of perfumes that are made every year is it's not, it's causing paralysis in customers. You know, people may want to discover a new perfume, but you know, there's, so many perfumes they don't they don't know where to begin and it's like you can't ask a customer to put in like a month's worth of sampling just to find one perfume so of course if they see something like oh well i've heard of this one and you know this these people are selling a perfume that smells just like it for 10 pounds so you know that it's a no-brainer for them to to make that decision so i think there's a, a lot of factors in play that you know, have created um, this desire for duping. So you, you did mention uh, an interesting point there that, that it, it does seem, um, maybe apart from the couple of years of at the height of the COVID pandemic, but it does seem like every year new release numbers just keep growing and, and growing. Brands seem to pop up like from from nowhere I'm not and I'm not talking about independent sole owner perfumer kind of brands I'm talking about brands that are probably owned by one company and they seem to have enough of a budget um, to really get a lot of exposure particularly on on social media do you, do, with things like that, is that something that you you also consider when you're considering a brand that you might want to stock or or is so, it not in your consideration? So if I'm seeing somebody that's sending out a lot of bottles on social media, I don't want to work with them. If mm-hmm. that's their only way of creating a culture of desirability for their products, that's like 
that that needs to come from the brands. Brands need to be telling their own stories. If they don't have the capability to tell the story of their own products, then, you know, I can't sell that. And it's like, I don't know, I, I find this whole culture of um, giving things away on social media, it's creating a real yoke on the industry that needs to be broken. Um, because, well, another thing is, I don't even think giving away things on social media, it doesn't lead to any sales. Um, I think anybody that's still kind of doing this should probably take a good, long, hard look in the mirror and think about what they're doing. Um, and, but the, what it is doing though, it's obliterating any other brands being spoken about. And this is creating a real distortion for anybody that doesn't kind of understand the subtext of these practices. And, you know, they're seeing things that, again, it's also causing a, a culture of misinformation amongst customers that are looking for new perfumes. Um, so I think, I think, you know, on several levels, that entire practice should just be done away with. And of course, in a market as minuscule as niche perfume, why anybody would give something away for nothing is completely ludicrous. This might be a simplistic viewpoint. My, my, uh, one of my issues with, with that, and, and I have to say, I completely agree with what you just said, Brooke. One of my issues with that is as, as purely as a consumer, forget about everything else I do within the fragrance community, but as a consumer, if I'm scrolling, doom scrolling on my Instagram and I see the same perfume talked about several times within a few days, you know, obviously that, that, it's become obvious that quite a few of these uh, accounts are getting sent this product. Unfortunately, not a lot of them like make it very clear that they've received the product. Uh, obviously, they, they're always positive about it. But what, what the first thing that I think about is that, well, if I want to buy this bottle, um, let's, say I do, let's say I sample it, I like it, and I want to buy this bottle – I'm sure that a lot of a lot of the price that I'm paying for my bottle uh, is to make up for all these free bottles. That Absolutely, have been sent sent to. You're all paying these for that. Yeah, yeah. And another uh, thing. And, I, oh, yeah, sorry. Go on. You go. <laughs> um, for me, I like as somebody that has like looked into the cost of advertising. When I see people doing unpaid marketing work for brands making you know, thousands, if not millions of pounds. I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I guess I question um, the opinions of people uh, partaking in doing free work for somebody. Um, you know, how valid can their opinion be if they're not intelligent enough to be charging for this? I also do, I also do wonder actually how much, homework the brands whoever's responsible for their their pr or whatever how much homework they do with some of the accounts that they usually it's choose very to little. work with it's, it's yeah. just it's just looking at the amount of followers and that and that's the thing i mean i think you know i feel like it's it's quite an exploitative culture because you know brands know that content creators want to post 
things every day because content creators feel that this is what the algorithm and people, I believe in this algorithm about as much as I believe in God, which is to yeah. say not at all. Um, <laughs> so, you know, but they know that these content creators, they want to post something every day and they also, and also part of it is, you know, wanting, wanting that attention. I, I think that they get a real buzz out of, you know, the attention that they get on social media. And I also feel that the content creators feel like on some level that they're chosen for some reason. But unfortunately, the fact of the matter is that they're all completely replaceable. Brands don't really care. They care about the size of the audience and the engagement. And the minute that they're not providing that, you know, they find somebody else. Oh, so, I've seen I've seen one or two um uh <laughs> one or two rants on social media when uh, when it hasn't worked out for a particular influencer and uh, <laughs> they're they're unhappy. But yeah, like you you make the 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 point is that they they look at purely numbers and and uh, you know I, I wonder also if they uh, if they should be doing if they're going to work this way. You look at the influencer, yeah, look at the numbers, but. Have a look at the engagement because, it, it, like, it's an obvious thing where some accounts, you know, that um, they're artificial numbers, like straight yes. up artificial numbers. They're they've paid for bots or whatever, and then you look at each of their posts, and they've got three comments, and like only point five percent of their number of followers <laughs> are liking liking the yeah. post but 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 yeah and it goes back to the the brand the in some ways these brands like in my mind at least and I'm not um speaking for everyone here but in my mind at least is the brand is tainted by working that way especially if they especially with particular or you know some yes it, um, it's just it's just I'm hoping that it's going to I don't know do you see it actually changing or evolving or uh, how, you know, how do you I've think I've been it's... thinking a lot about like how like I as much as I'd like it to go away I don't really feel that it ever will um mm. but you know the way that I could actually see it working is you know if there's people that uh, on my personal account who I've followed um you know for quite a long time and I understand their taste in fragrance yeah so when I look at what they're posting, I kind of look at that content kind of through that filter, the filter of their personal taste. So yeah. if you kind of allow people to develop a distinctive taste, that's when I feel that you could look at that. And as a brand, you could say, oh, well, we have this perfume that really fits quite nicely into the kind of perfumes that you like. So perhaps then the people that are viewing your content might also like that perfume. So in a way that kind of feels like a more organic um, exchange and also something that doesn't um, diminish the credibility of the content creator. Because I feel that once people become a, a PR channel, that everything that they've actually worked for just then is completely diminished. Yeah, definitely agree. The, the kind of, uh, kind of, Chips away at, um, you know, for want of a better word, credibility. I guess, like you, like you say, if you follow people, you get to know them. You know what their tastes are like, and then suddenly, 
if that you you can you can tell when there's an incongruousness to what they what they usually post with with some of these with some of these brands. Um, I know that uh, uh, my next question. I actually um, was going to ask you what is an unpopular opinion uh, you have about perfume or or the fragrance community i mean <laughs> i don't know if what we just talked about is unpopular um what what's but but do you have any thoughts about like trends you're seeing in in the perfume industry fragrance community why, yes um, i do why yes yeah. i do <laughs> well feel free to speak your mind brooke <laughs> so i mean this is something that um Barbara Herman and I were actually talking about recently. It's this whole, that perfumery is in its PTSD era. So because of like everything, because of like world events, you know, everything that's kind of been happening since about 2016. um, If you think about fragrance as a mirror to society, Mm -hmm. it's basically saying that what people are craving is extreme comfort. So we're seeing not only very um, like vanilla powder, some kind of gelato, something about pistachio, <laughs> cherries, like seeing all that, not only like kind of regressive fragrance profiles, but even the names themselves, they have no mystery. There's no, there's nothing enigmatic about them. They're just, you know, they're like bowl of ice cream or cherry wood or just you know they're all it's so like infantilized Mm. um so i think it's it's like this uh, the trend i'm seeing at the moment is just about um it's just going backwards and i kind of feel that response it's while it's understandable i don't always feel that it's the correct one i mean we all of course have um duvet days where we just kind of like want to be wrapped up and coddled. But I also think like when times are difficult, that's, you know, when you need things like art and beauty and you need to be inspired and uplifted and, you know, just kind of rallied to be a better version of yourself to just get through the hellishness of, of existence at times. And especially now when we're just almost bombarded on a daily basis with some new trauma or you know something terrible happening does that um is that like a separate thing to uh, i mean uh, because one of the things i i think about a lot especially in mass produced you know big brands that are in your department store the the proliferation of flankers just because an original sold really well. Let's keep using the name that that kind of association. I and I know that's more aimed at uh, what I would call casual perfume buyers as opposed to people in the fragrance community. Um, but do you, I mean? Do you think that's all part of like a kind of a dumbing down um, from from brands towards consumers? Um, I think it's kind of their their attempt at like an, an easy sell. Um, again, I kind of feel that that speaks to a lot of the 
overproduction and, you know, people feeling a bit like not knowing where to go. But also I think like perfume is a slow, perfume is a slow turnover. It's like how often are people finishing, even like people that are just wearing one fragrance, you know, at a time that could take them six months to maybe even a year to three years to finish if they're not using perfume every day. So, you know, for those customers that may be buying just one perfume and it probably is something sold more in like the mainstream designer area, then, you know, then there's like a new flanker that may be of interest for them to try alongside the perfume that they're using. Understandable, understandable, and because it, uh, I mean, obviously, even you have to would have to take this into consideration that there's there's an uh, a balance between artistic and commercial sensibilities as well. I mean, you could, I'm imagining that you. I mean, obviously, you have to love everything that you sell that you curate for the for your website, uh, but it also needs to sell uh, like. Am I am I making the wrong assumption? Because it, it, no, no, that's yeah. that's one hundred percent correct. And uh, and uh, as I'm thinking about you know doing things like going into pop ups, I'm thinking about like you know the people that may wander in off the street. Like, what are the perfumes that that would be a good kind of entry point to introduce them to the brands that I'm stalking? And I do I do feel that most of the brands do have like those sort of. Um, more easily accessible fragrances kind of within their collections but but there are others where it's just like every single one just kind of feels like a nice uh a nice point for somebody to kind of step into this uh more niche artistic creative world so brooke um if you uh, actually, I, I, I want to want to touch on because you, you mentioned pistachio um, before when you were talking about <laughs> trends. Uh, be, uh, I uh, recently smelled um, the pistachio from DS Durga, uh, and I know that uh, Kayali also released a pistachio. And and for a month or two in the last in the last twelve months, it seemed like all of a sudden everyone was on a pistachio. Um, <laughs> train but trends like trends like that um do you like do you have a sense of have you developed a good sense of what might be trending um in the future uh or in terms of terms of particular styles of perfume or notes or accords or and if not what would you like to see come back into fashion um well i think you know, it's always, customers always surprise me. That's uh, one thing that I've kind of learned in this past year and a half. I mean, um, one of the brands that I work with, Marlu, their perfumes are kind of like, um, I kind of describe them as like different levels of like animalic musk. And so, <laughs> um, but some uh, there was uh, somebody on TikTok. Um, she she had bought samples from the brand, and she posted a video about them that ended up going viral. And suddenly, I had uh, people, all these young girls on TikTok from all over the world, just buying the uh, Marlu Discovery set. And wow. you know, it, to me, like I thought it was such a great 
thing to see happening because I couldn't imagine, you know, just from the ones that I saw on social media, I could never imagine these girls like discovering these perfumes and, you know, being curious about them. But the the woman who posted the video on TikTok, like she used to work at scent bars. So she yeah. knew these perfumes and she kind of like started the whole thing off by saying that when they at the shop, they have to, they used to have to keep these locked under the counter. So right away she was like, uh, kind of getting people very curious about, about the Marley fragrances. And it was great. And, you know, even almost two months later, I'm still getting orders for the discovery set. In fact, I have to make 12 this weekend just to fulfill orders. I mean, the, the first week when they were coming in, like it was just nuts. Like, the phone was just dinging, order, order, order. (laughs) And I was like, what is going on? And the video ended up having like over a million views. And that that to me is a perfect example of uh, almost the opposite of what we were talking about earlier. That's an organic, um, that's a real influencer, you know. Yes, absolutely. Because they don't mean to be an influencer. They're just talking about something they they love and um, and it's just caught fire from from there. And and I can say I've smelled some of the Malu stuff and it's not the type of perfume that you would automatically associate with young girls uh, on TikTok wearing like compared to the, the usual um, stuff that is marketed to them in in the from the from big designers, but so that's really that's really good that they're that's almost yeah, a, you know. it's been great, and and you know quite a few of them have bought you know full size bottles, so they're obviously finding something in them that that really spoke to them, and I think at its best, you know, perfume kind of does pull a response from people, and and that kind of guttural visceral level that is almost inexplicable at times, but I think that's just part of the magic of it. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's, it's really good. So in terms of your own personal perfume wearing, Brooke, uh, can you think of a perfume or a few perfumes that right at the moment you can't live without? Um, oh gosh. Yeah. Um, Kind of what I've been wearing a lot of recently is I've, I mean, since we started working together, I've been, I kind of fell back in love with uh, Nila Vermeer's fragrances. Um, I think I'm wearing, actually wearing Trey tonight. I, mm-hmm. I think um, there's just something about them. I, I think they kind of came out before, almost before like niche really it was kind of like just at the early days of like when niche was just like building up steam and um i think they are probably the best thing that bertrand duchefort has ever made um and that's a big statement (laughs) yeah absolutely because i i'm a big fan of his work um but there is a there is a subtlety to them um they're elegant while also feeling like warm and approachable and even like earthy, like, uh, like Bombay bling is with its like tropical fruits and white flowers. But underneath that, you just get this like simmer of cumin and patchouli and woods. And it, it almost does like kind of verge into almost like a semi animalic territory. And I don't know, there's, there's something really special about those perfumes and, it's been really nice working with Neela, um, just kind of like getting to know her. She's like 
um, she's when her first order arrived um, at my flat, I texted her and I said um, how much fun my kittens were having playing in the boxes. And she immediately responded. She's like, please send me pictures. <laughs> <laughs> so like right away, it was just, I just kind of really warmed to her. What was, um, what are some of the perfumes uh, you smelled for the first time this year that, that really stuck with you? Uh, like I'm, I'm talking probably new releases this year. Cause I imagine you try a lot of stuff uh oh, did yeah. any did any stick out in particular to you like that and um, why why did you enjoy those um so i've recently got a bottle of the uh the new parfum dampier perfume uh Raud, i think it's called um i found that very interesting i like i really love the perfumer who creates them um i think there's something about the way that he uses narcissus both in that and in Tabak Taboo that yeah, yeah. has a very like untamed feeling about it. It's it's kind of like um I don't know, it's it's just one of those like it's not a perfume that I would necessarily have ever I don't actually even really like oud perfumes and this new one kind of is is an oud based fragrance, but I think the combination of the materials together just creates this really kind of compelling smell. And even like when I had it on the scent strip on my desk, like I just wanted to like smell it again. Like every time I set it down, I just would like find myself looking at it out of the corner of my eye, just <laughs> kind of wanting to to smell it again. And also the um the new he also did one for Old Factor Studio called um Smoky Soul, which is very good. Um, the new Roberto Greco fragrance, which was made by Christopher Sheldrake. It's fantastic. Um, so yeah, those are the things that I've been enjoying recently. Well, you've just, you've just given me a short list of things to try. Cause, uh, <laughs> I, I love all, uh, you know, I, I love those perfumers that, that made those. So and it's very exciting. Um, Brooke, well, I, just want to thank you so much for the interesting conversation that we've had because <laughs> I imagine if we delve a lot deeper into some of these topics, we could we could do much longer podcasts. But I, I just want to thank you. I know it's starting to get a little bit late uh, over there in London, um, but I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, thank you so much oh, for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. me. It's been my pleasure. Um, if anyone wants to check out Sancelia, I'll have a link to the website uh, in the description. And um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Brooke. Yay!